Do please be seated, and if you would like to turn with us, please, to Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the whole of this chapter together as we think in a few minutes of how God sees the world and what God does about what he sees and what is the result of that. But if I may, just very briefly, particularly for the sake of those of you who uh, were not able to be with us last night for our Egyptian feast, uh, or perhaps you were not with us this morning, we are delighted to be back in Edinburgh. We have uh, our daughter and son-in-law here, and uh, our own son is now working in London. My mum and dad are down south, and uh, this year particularly, as dad has been sick and mum has been his carer, we've uh, taken every opportunity to come back. And uh, so when this prospect was offered to us, uh, well, over a year ago, I think now, we, we really jumped at it. And uh, we want you to know how timely this little time out has been for us from uh, the rigors of Cairo, Africa's largest city, a constant noise. It's uh, like New York, the city that never sleeps. Uh, and we don't often sleep too sometimes. So uh, but we're really glad just to have this time out and to be able to share with you. And uh, in a minute, uh, we'll talk about some of the things that we've learned in Egypt. That was really our focus this morning. But now we want specially to show you something of how our friends in the Middle East see a very familiar passage of Scripture. And Helen and I are going to read Luke 15 to you together, if we may. You'll find it on page 1048 of the Church Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, 
the younger son, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry <clears throat> and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Shall we pray? Father, we do pray now that as we look again at these words, for many of us, a cluster of familiar stories from Jesus, we pray that you'll open our eyes, our hearts and our minds, that we may learn what it is to follow you with those who follow you throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you. So we left uh, Edinburgh in 2006, and we moved to Cyprus to work with this group called MECO, in many ways very much on the same page uh, as OMF, wanting to support God's people in the Middle East, wanting to recruit men and women who would take the long view, if possible, invest in Middle Eastern languages, Arabic and Kurdish, and where there are national churches, come and work alongside them under their leadership, as we now do in Cairo, and serve as God calls and places us. It's not an easy call. The languages are very difficult. I think it's too late for me. Which is why when we got the chance to go back to church full-time, instead of traveling a lot of the time as we'd done before in Scotland and then in, uh, from Cyprus, uh, we went back to be the... I'm the senior pastor of the English-speaking congregations at All Saints Cathedral in Cairo. It's quite a mouthful for a title. The bishop is the dean in our world. That's the person who's responsible for all the services and all the affairs of a cathedral church in a great city like Cairo. And we work alongside Arabic-speaking congregations and a variety of Sudanese congregations uh, wanting to minister God's word to the people who come and facing that huge challenge of getting out there into Africa's largest city. 20 million, perhaps, uh, at some rough estimates. 2 million commuters every day, more or less. Nobody really knows. But in the midst of all those people, uh, there must be 15 to 20,000 native English speakers from various backgrounds from all over the world, and that's our target. We're working alongside Egyptian church leaders. Now, we want to tell you that we've learned a lot while we've been in Egypt and up to now, so far these last two years. We've learned how to catch mosquitoes and flies, like that. If you do that, they'll always escape. Uh, but if you do that, for a moment you confuse their senses and they don't quite know which way to take off. So you get them. Fascinating. We've learned how to cross uh, highways from four to eight lanes, lane by lane. The real secret is to tuck in behind an Egyptian and follow them as they move from one car length to the next. And uh, normally you'll get across, though I have to say the death rate is very high in Egypt on the roads. We've learned why our hosts sometimes don't put their car lights on in the night. That is to save power for the horns. <laughs> we have a friend in uh, South Lebanon who uh, is a Brit working there. He's the head of the evangelical school in Tyre. And uh, he took two or three goes to get his British driving test because he'd learned in Lebanon. And they said, no, no, it's no good. You keep failing. You keep failing on not looking in your blind spot. He said, what's a blind spot? Oh, it's that bit of the mirror that you can't see. And in a posh new car now, you get an extra bit of mirror that helps you to see. But he says, we don't have blind spots in Lebanon. We draw a line. And if you get run into from behind, it's their fault. And if you run into somebody from the front, it's your fault. And the horn is the blind spot. <laughs> exactly the same in Egypt. It's just telling you I'm here. Beep, beep. I'm here all day, all night without fail. Even when you're the only person on the street and they're the only car on the street for a moment, they'll use the horn. We've learned how really to appreciate football and to celebrate uh, victories and to mourn defeats. 
We've learned, uh, watching our friends, having fun without alcohol. We've learned how to greet people and how important it is to greet them at every moment. Now, by the way, we know when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out, you're going ahead of me, you're going to prepare the ground, don't greet anybody on the way. You know why he said that? Because if you greet them in Middle Eastern style, you'll never get there. You'll spend all your time greeting and catching up and catching up with the family and the workplace and and it goes on and on. It's wonderful. But uh, we've learned something about how to greet people. And we've learned by the example of our friends, as we were sharing with you this morning, how to be faithful as Christians under harassment and pressure. Our Christian leader friends in the Middle East are not yet talking about persecution in some areas. They still call it only harassment. But it's a growing trend. And it's good that we can share and pray with them at the moment. This morning we talked about the joy and the faithfulness that they have shown us. We talked about their commitment to learning and understanding. And we talked about their boldness and their bravery in Christian witness, even under growing pressure. This year in the cathedral in Cairo at All Saints there, we've been focusing on Luke. And chapter 15 is the center of Luke's gospel. And you have there these three central parables. Maybe we can show you, by the way, the picture that didn't come out this morning, uh, which means so much to our friends. This is actually the the stone and the little garden opposite the cathedral in the compound where we live. Some glitch this morning meant that I couldn't show it to you. But here is that famous verse from Hosea, taken up in the Christmas story as uh, Egypt welcomes Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, a place that means so much to our friends. But here in Luke 15, we have another dimension of how they see things. We have in this chapter, if you like, a single focus on lost and found. Lost and found. Two crucial questions, if you like, defined by Jesus' stories here. First, what is our true state as Jesus sees it? And second, what has God done about that? Third, we could add, what is the result? That's what I want to share with you in these few minutes this evening. And uh, maybe we can see the headings just as I go now. These headings actually also show you the key areas, the key differences between the majority Islam, where we live, 90% of the population of uh, 80 million or so are uh, Muslims, the key differences between their understanding and a Christian understanding, the key differences between Islam and Christianity. If you take these away with you, they'll be the key areas that you can focus in your own prayer and witness for those around you who are of Muslim faith at the moment. First is simply this. Jesus' three stories show us what we are like in God's eyes. And the description that comes from all three of these stories is that we are all lost. As far as God and Jesus see the situation, we are all, one way and another, lost. 
Each of those stories that he tells is about lostness. The sheep has wandered off and is lost. The coin on which this widow depends is lost in the gloom and the dust of the house. By the way, there are some similarities between uh, our Celtic world and the Middle East. Some fascinating links. Uh, One of them is if you go into the Black House up on the West Coast somewhere, uh, some of you will have seen this on your travels, you'll notice uh, how dark a house it is. Because the windows are high and they're small. And now they do that, of course, because the weather is even dreecher in the northwest sometimes than it is here. In uh, Egypt, uh, many of the country houses, uh, they're dark and the windows are small, and that's to keep the sun out. I was joking with some of you this morning that in Arabic, the word for umbrella is not anything that means keeping the rain off. It's a word that means keeping the sun off, because that's what we use them for. We don't get seasons of rain like you've enjoyed with your shorts and your coats. Uh, Our water comes from underneath. We get five days of rain a year if we're lucky. Uh, The rest of it comes from the Nile. So uh, it's a different situation. In this house, she searches for her coin in the gloom and the dust. The prodigal son, as we call him, and I'll explain the title in a minute, he is lost in a far country and a strange culture. The older son in the story turns out to be lost in his driving sense of what is right, his overwhelming determination to do his duty. Lost is what it comes to. Lost is the verdict of Scripture on us without God, without Christ in our lives. And it's not a very happy place to be. I don't know whether you follow the series Lost. We get it uh, on one of the Arabic channels. Uh, I can't quite bear to watch it. It's, it's hard work. Uh, we get these, uh, these terrible, terrifying uh, descriptions of what's happening as things fall apart and uh, the group is fighting for its life and uh, competitiveness rules. It's, it's a bit like a contemporary version of Animal Farm. And then there are these poignant flashbacks to the, the, the lovely moments where we came from, those better days before we were lost very interesting uh, for that series to be so popular or if uh, you're not well to take another example the key thing is you, you need to find out what's wrong before you can get better then you'll know what might be able to put you right Now that's a bit of a problem uh, in Egypt because every fourth Egyptian is a doctor of some sort or another. Every third Egyptian is an engineer, it seems. But every fourth one is a doctor. Uh, And they're all doctors of different things and you pay as you go. Uh, Not a vision quite like our health service, uh, but it's a different way of doing things. And uh, the difficult thing is, the key thing is to know which one to go to. So you have to know what's wrong with you before you can find the right doctor, which is why you need a friend to help you. You always need a friend. Uh, Ah, yes, I know a doctor who can help you. Ah, yes, I know those symptoms. Uh, We can introduce you to someone. There's always someone in the middle who can buffer for you. But it makes it quite difficult to know what to do if you're not feeling quite well. But in the end, the key will be the same. You've got to find out what's wrong before you can put things right. I don't know about you, uh, but uh, this for me, uh, over the many years that I've been a Christian now, has been an increasingly important feature of the Christian faith. We have this diagnosis of what is wrong. 
So Genesis chapter 3, for example, uh, for me is an increasingly important place to look to see what the Bible says has gone wrong and what has been affected by that. The whole world has been affected by it. We've gone wrong between us and God. We've gone wrong as a result between us and one another. We've gone wrong as a result between us and the natural world. And we've gone wrong inside our own heads and minds sometimes as a result. That, for me, is the most satisfying explanation uh, that's out there on what's gone wrong. And as we shall see, we also have the most satisfying explanation of what God has done to put that right. Lost is the verdict of scripture on us. In Islam, there is no Genesis 3. There is no fall as such. There is just that sense that actually all we needed was to know more. There is an Adam and an Eve, uh, and they did get things wrong, but then they were given another start. Uh, But the driving sense for them is that they really need to know more. That's why there's so much emphasis in Islam on knowing the words of the Quran. Whether you know the meaning or not, that's a different story. Uh, And there's so much emphasis on knowing it in its original Arabic, if possible, not in translation. We have to go to God on his terms rather than him coming to us, as we shall see. So much uh, on the satellite channels. We've lined up some of the satellite channels. We've got some of the Christian ones and we've got some of the Muslim ones next door. And it's fascinating watching the contrast. The Muslim ones are all about what is the right thing to do. I had this situation the other day when uh, things went wrong. Please, Mr. Muller, did I do the right thing? Please tell me, is there something written somewhere in the Quran or in one of the traditions that I got right? If I got it wrong, I'm thinking of a situation coming up. Please, Mr. Muller, what should I do? What is my duty? What are the rules? Will you please help me? Contrast the Christian ones, and of course you know they're a mixed bag sometimes. Uh, I usually switch off the ones who are asking for serious money. Uh, But uh, those there, at least they are saying, there is a God, and God comes to you, and God loves you more than you ever know. God is prepared to reach out to you, and he longs for nothing more than that you should welcome him and respond to him. See the contrast amazing and it begins in the contrast of the diagnosis what's wrong before you can appreciate what's right let's reflect for a moment longer on this lostness think of the prodigal son as we call it actually I got the title uh, from David Pawson some of you remember David Pawson a very famous Baptist preacher for many years who had a unique ability to put a title on a passage that really got to the heart of the passage And this was his title. This is the parable of the prodigal father, as we shall see in a minute. It's actually the story of his two sons. And both are lost. The younger son is the one we're more familiar with, perhaps. The younger son is the one who has the choice. The younger son is like us. He's a consumer. The younger son wants to do what is true to himself. He wants, in the immortal words now of Frank Sinatra, to do things my way. So he goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance. He is the one who appears to us to be somehow attractive. He's independent, he's expressive, he wants to experiment, he wants to learn. The older son is more recognizable in some Middle Eastern cultures. In a corporate culture, 
in a culture where there are many who regard duty as more important, where there are many obligations that we're living in a culture of obligation, the only catch for Westerners is you don't know what the obligation is until it's passed. And then you realize the offense you've caused, or you may not. It's quite tricky. We have to tread very carefully. Sometimes we need friends to help us understand what we did wrong in this case. And sometimes we've scratched our heads and wondered, would there ever be a time when we wouldn't put our foot in it and uh, get things wrong, as we often seem to do? But the older son is more recognizable when you have many obligations and many duties. But the point is this, you can be as lost in duty as in consuming and in pleasure. In the end, they are both lost in the story. You'll have friends who are at both ends of this spectrum, I think who you're coming alongside, who you're working with, maybe in your own families or your own neighborhoods. Uh, these are the ones you want to pray for. These are the ones you want to be inviting at Christmas. Some of them are, are lost in duty and obligation of what's right. And some are just wanting to express themselves and do their own thing. And they would think of church as a very tight place and a very difficult place to come. Both are lost. And both need to hear the message that follows. Because if we're lost, you see, whether in pleasure or duty or just like the sheep and the coin just lost. What can be done? Here's the second remarkable thing that comes from these stories. It's really a way of saying, what is God like? God comes searching for us. That's the message of these three stories. Each character, each leading character, the shepherd, the woman, and the Father, they all go searching. And it's not difficult, is it, to see that Jesus is intending us to understand that these three characters are representing God. And God is not a God who sits waiting for you to get it right. Not a God of whom you need to be afraid in case he will eventually reject you. But a God who actively comes searching for you. Some surveys a couple of years ago picked up by the Egypt Bible Society show that Egypt is the world's most religious country. The leader of one of the largest Protestant churches just across the river from us in the Middle East, Pastor Sameh, uh, he puts it like this. It's a very memorable saying that uh, we've often come back to. He says this, In Egypt, everyone believes in God. Everyone believes in God. That's why it's the world's most religious society. Everyone believes in God. The question is, what is God like? Isn't that brilliant? He puts that so well. The majority version is Islam. The minority, and it's still a, an 8 million minority, so it's not tiny. It's a significant minority, but the story is different. And the story is this, that God comes searching God comes looking. God comes hunting. Here's the big difference between Islam and Christianity. Jesus says God is the searcher. God is hunting for us. Each of the stories involves a character who searches for what is lost. The shepherd and the widow, they drop everything to look for what is lost. The shepherd doesn't say, well, okay, never mind. You know, you win some, you lose some. I've had a hundred sheep and it's been really good. I've still got 99. Hey, that's not bad. Never mind the one. No, he doesn't say that. 
He takes the risk that trouble might come to the 99 because he is absolutely determined to find the one that went wandering. The woman in the house, she refuses just to shrug her shoulders and say, well, okay, at least I still have nine. I had these ten coins maybe on a necklace around my neck. Maybe they were my dowry, actually. Maybe they're my pension. My husband's died and I'm alone. And, uh, okay, okay, I've still got nine. That'll last. And maybe if the inflation rate is right and the exchange rate works, it'll eke out a bit longer. Not a bit of it. No, she turns the house upside down and cleans it like it's never been cleaned before. <laughs> we know about that in Egypt. Uh, the sand comes in from the desert trying to uh, take back the city. Uh, and the sand combines with the pollution in the city, which they tell us is worth smoking 20 cigarettes a day. How about that? Uh, that combines to produce black dust, uh, which you, once you've cleaned it, come back in an hour, you have to clean it again. Uh, if your house is not hermetically sealed, that is. So she cleans this house like it's never been cleaned before, all to find this one coin. There's a nice extra touch in the Middle Eastern languages, as Kenneth Bailey has pointed out. In Arabic especially, you don't usually say, I lost my sheep or I lost my coin. You would say something like, uh, you wouldn't admit to that level of responsibility. You'd normally say, if you were traveling, not that I missed the train, but the train left me. Isn't that a nice touch? Uh, I, didn't, I went down to the station, I went down and bought my ticket, but the train left me. Why would it do such a thing? It went, it's Egypt, it went on time. And it left for Alexandria, and there I was with my ticket, and there was no train. The train left me. It's a wonderful little twist of language, which means that we don't take responsibility for missing the train. Some of our Egyptian friends are pretty breathless characters, and they always try to get to the airport as, as, as quick as they can, but not three hours before, you know? And the number of times they come back with their heads hanging a bit, because the plane left me. The sheep left me, the coin left me, not a bit of it. Here is a God who takes responsibility. Pictured by the shepherd, pictured by the widow. Here is a God who comes searching for those who are lost. And that's supremely why Jesus personalizes it with the story we call the prodigal son, the prodigal father, the two sons. The focus is on the father who in context in the Middle East behaves really, really strangely. You see, by rights, he should never have responded to his younger son's demand. He should have disciplined him and made him an example. Do you know what the younger son actually said? He said this, Dad, I wish you were dead. And he should really have uh, disciplined this young man. This is an appalling thing to say to your father. What he says is, I want my money now. And the only way I'm going to get my inheritance is if you're deed. So please, give me my money. Effectively, Dad, it's worse than this. I want nothing more to do with you. I want nothing more to do with our relationship. I just want the money and I want my independence. By rights, the father should have disciplined him and made him an example, yet let others in the town might follow him. By rights, because of the shame he has brought, this younger son, on the family, the father should have treated his son as lost, cut off from the family, effectively dead like many are now, if they become Christians, from sometimes Jewish backgrounds this happens, and certainly from Islamic backgrounds. This, after all, to change sides like this, this is the ultimate disloyalty. 
You are disloyal to your father. You are disloyal to your family and your roots. You are disloyal to your community. You are disloyal to your town. You are disloyal to your nation. You are disloyal to your, your culture. What more can we say to you? Which is why we sometimes hear of honor killings. How can you possibly come back after that? And when the son does come to his senses and come back, oh yes, the father should have listened to his speech. Then he should have given him his request. I want to be a slave again. Even there, I might be able to buy my way out of the trouble I've got into. And do you notice, if you read the story again more carefully later, the speech that the younger son has prepared, he never gets the chance to finish. He never gets to say that last sentence, which is, please let me be one of your servants, because at least they eat well and they do well. The father cuts him off before he gets to that point and welcomes him into his family. But he shouldn't have done that. The father does none of these things. Astonishingly, at the beginning, he lets his son go. Those of us who have children, you know that that's very hard to do. You have to let them go in order to achieve a level of mature relationship. In order for them one day to come back, maybe, and to ask advice. You have to let them go. And he then, this father, spends his days with his eyes straining at the horizon, longing for any sign that his son might be on his way back. It, it's, it would be like talking to somebody who, who, when you're talking to them, they're always looking elsewhere like this. I've known preachers like that. They wander around like this and you wonder quite who they're talking to. It would be like that. You'd feel uneasy about it. You, but this guy's not really concentrating. He's not giving me his attention. No, because his attention is searching for his son. He's looking for any sign that his son might be on his way back. And then when his son does appear, the father is off, hitching up his galabea, his clothes, racing up the streets, behaving quite bizarrely for a senior and respected leader in the community. Middle East men, they never run unless they're running for their life across the five-lane highway. But here is this father totally focused on welcoming his lost son. And then, instead of punishing him, he reinstates him. He kills the best animal. He makes the big feast, the robe and the, the shoes. All the details mean something in the story. And they're all honoring this son who has come back at last. To top it all, he throws the biggest party that his estate has ever seen. All for the sake of this lost son. And that, sadly, is the point at which we meet the other son. He's quite different. He never wished his father dead. He never ran away. He quietly got on with doing his duty, but his duty robbed him of his joy. Duty became resentment. So when his brother comes back, the only thing he comes anywhere near is the house. Not the party, not the father, and certainly not his brother. He refuses to do his duty as the older brother, which in the Middle East is to be the master of ceremonies at the celebrations in the household. Oh no, I'm not going anywhere near that. He shames his father by refusing to do that. 
And the shame is added as he stays away, refuses to come in, and forces the father to come out and meet with him. So everybody can hear the conversation, which his father does, as the God who searches for lost people, whether they be lost in pleasure or lost in duty. Get this, and you realize how much different the Bible story is from most of the stories that are being told in the Middle East at the moment. Indeed, most of the stories that are being told about God in the West as well. We think we're on some kind of great search for God, don't we? Uh, And the TV programs are still running around with that title. And Jesus shows us the Bible's version, which is that God is searching for us. Leaving everything behind to hunt for us, to send his son from his rightful place in heaven to come down to earth to reach out to us and to rescue us, enduring misunderstanding and shame and mockery in order to reach us and bring us back into his family. Taking that shame and disgrace on himself in order that we may be free from it and we may therefore be reunited with his family once again. Again, in Islam, God is... God and God alone and your duty is to work hard to come near him to submit to his will and then to wait in hope that he might be merciful to you without ever knowing for sure where you stand you have no assurance no confidence it's blasphemy to claim it no clarity no real hope but Jesus tells the opposite story the lengths to which the Father goes to reach us and all who are lost around us, both here and elsewhere. In the Middle East, there are two very big challenges that the churches face. One is, I mentioned this this morning, people leaving, like we've been hearing these last few weeks in Iraq. Should we stay? Should we leave? Is it too dangerous? Is there any future here? Is there any hope for us? We were safer before uh, the invasion and all that. And the church is also not quite sure what to do when people do change sides from Muslim to Christian. Will they be spies? Will they betray us? Can we trust them? Will they become like us? The prodigal father takes all these risks and more in order to reach out. How much more should we in our churches be prepared to take these risks for Christ. The reality, we're all lost. The other reality that God comes searching, and very briefly the third thing, when we are found, there is the most fabulous celebration. It really is the story of the reckless, loving Father that we've been reading. It's the gospel story of lost people found by God and each of these three parables ends in a heroic celebration. Not just a quiet meal with that kind of sigh relief at recovering the sheep and the coin and the sun, but a celebration to end all celebrations and a celebration that's shared with anyone who'll join in. It's amazing. We mentioned, I think, last night that the mark of Middle Eastern hospitality is not how much you get fed, but how much is left at the end. And the tables are groaning and you're exhausted and you keep forgetting not to clear your plate because if you clear your plate, that means your host hasn't satisfied you. And you must take more and they'll pile it on your plate. You don't get to choose. (laughs) And they'll sit around you waiting for you to eat it all. And you're groaning by the end of it. And still there's a week's worth of food on the table. 
It's amazing. It's a little picture of God's generosity and the God that Jesus speaks about here, which is the God of celebration, which is the God of joyful sharing, which is the God of search and rescue. This is our God. The mark of this celebration is that the lost things have been found and we share in their joy. Again, is this the picture that you are sharing with your friends? I know it's not the picture out there. Most people think that God is against them. Most people think that church is a dismal place where you have to snap to the rules and you have to do what you're told. You leave your brain at the door or on the offering plate. All those caricatures are out there. But this is different, isn't it? When they come, when we're found, there is a fabulous celebration. A glimpse of heaven for sure, but even now the rejoicing is going on as every single one of us in our different ways came to faith and as others will join us in the months and the years to come. That's the celebration. That's the picture that you're left with. How we wish in the Middle East that our friends would have this vision of God. How we wish that our friends in this country would be, have their eyes open to see this vision of God. That our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues and our critics would be able to see. That their inherited misunderstandings would be blown away by this vision of God. That all the misinformation that they're taught week by week, month by month, would be blown away by this picture of God. Your critics here are harsher even than ours, I think. More strident, but either way, Our prayer is that they will be overwhelmed by the God who searches and the God who celebrates the finding of the lost. At the end, there's a very interesting twist. My son, the father, said, you're always with me, and so on. We had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead. He's your brother. Now he's alive. What can we do but celebrate? He was lost and is found. And the story stops hanging as if to say how will it end will this son ever come back we don't know I think it's Jesus way of hooking us into the story as if to say will you respond I realize that on a celebration weekend like this when we're thinking about what God is doing throughout the world uh, you may have come tonight as a regular member of the congregation this may be an opportunity for you to say yes I want to be in that story I don't want to be lost anymore I want to be part of this it may be that uh, there are some of us here tonight who have been thinking about Christian things going to the courses exploring what it means but now is a moment for you to say yeah I want to finish that story I want to be like the prodigal son, as we call him. I don't want to be like the other one. I don't want to leave it hanging. This is a good moment now for me to pray in the silence and to respond for myself. Or you might say tonight, that's very interesting. That's fascinating to hear how Middle Easterners see the Bible. I got lots of questions. I'm going to sign up for the next course. I'm going to make it my business to find out more what this story is all about. I don't know where you are tonight. But I hope you found something helpful here. As we've seen for these few minutes, how our friends in the Middle East will see this passage and how they long that we can see it together. Maybe we can finish as we pray and as we build ourselves into this story.
a moment of quiet together as we reflect on Jesus' brilliant stories. So much from our own world, so much from our own experience, so easy to recognise, so powerful in the picture that they build up. Father, I want to thank you very much for what you have shown us through our Middle Eastern friends, things that we'd never really seen before. The way that your word has come to life for us. Different dimensions, different experiences. The same overwhelming picture that it is true that we are lost without you. There are different ways of being lost, but it's true. And it is also true that you haven't left it there. You've taken responsibility and you came after us through Christ. And now you're inviting us to respond. Lord, you know that many of us here tonight have been Christians for some time. Many of us uh, have started out on that journey. We just want to tell you tonight how much we appreciate everything that you've done for us. Pictured by these parables. We want to take these few moments to build ourselves into the story again. To thank you. And to ask that you'll give us courage and boldness and opportunity, especially through the Christmas season, to share these things. And Lord, you know that there are some of us here tonight who are still just wondering, still exploring, still questioning. We pray too uh, for them that uh, they may find answers to their questions and that you would continue your search for them until they are no longer lost but found until the celebration continues for them as for others. As we pray for ourselves here in Edinburgh, we pray for our friends and our colleagues in Egypt. We pray that you will bless them as they understand these things and as they witness to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.